90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, getting into the meat of the semester. So, you know, same old, same old. Yeah. Well, when this airs, I'm going to be at OU. I know. Yay. So I'll probably... No, you're a pretty productive guy. So, you know, I look forward to sitting with our computers at the the beer spot. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, The beer spot. Uh, (laughs) Good old McNally's. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I was wondering, uh, for those of you that have never been to Norman, which is probably most, there's this wonderful pub, McNally's, that has a... uh, list you know you can keep up with all the different beers that you've tried there i'm sure it's an app or something now but i was wondering if i bring my oh. you know eight stapled pages of paper <laughs> from the old days what would happen uh, i was gonna say it it will look a little bit different to you that's for sure they have a new organizational style of how they're organizing their beers which i'm not on board with yet but i will not try to sway your opinion one way or the other <laughs> Uh, we will have a lengthy discussion of this later. Yes, yes. yeah, we sure will. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I'm coming there to give a talk called LAGS. I know. It really seems like a real bad acronym, but it's life after grad school, and it's really just an excuse for us to have a faculty meeting during our, during our normally scheduled colloquium while still holding colloquium for the students. Right, because flying somebody in is pretty cheap. Uh. Uh, yeah, well, and the other two people aren't even getting flown in, so you know you should feel feel happy about that. So they're really cheap. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I get to to bat lead off in this series, mm-hmm. and it uh, should be a lot of fun. I went over my presentation just before we were recording. Uh, the amount of gifs and puns and everything. I'm I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Uh, like I said, I hope they're age appropriate because stuff you think's funny isn't funny for someone born in 1998. It's funny to me. So, <laughs> so that's all that matters. <laughs> that's how I approach class too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is uh, the end of an era here. We're wrapping up the solar system series. I mean, I'm sad, but, whew, you know. <laughs> It, it was, it's always hard to get interviews organized, especially this many in a row. Yeah, I feel like I, uh, I feel like I have flown through the solar system. That's how um, exhausting this was. But I think it was really successful. And I think we learned so much. I mean, no, I am going to speak for you. Yeah, I think we learned so much about oh, yeah. our, our neighbors that we didn't even know about. And we're kind of space nerds, too. So it was super great. Yeah, and we got a chance to talk to some really fascinating people, and that doesn't stop with today's guest. That's right. So not just, I mean, we've done all the planets, and we've even done one that's not a planet. So what else has been in our solar system? Yeah, it's time to talk about interstellar objects, objects, objects. (laughs) (laughs) We really need to pay somebody to get on that sound stuff. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So uh, this week, we're really thrilled to welcome Dr. David Jewett to the show. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> so, David, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into whatever you call exactly what you do, a little bit about your background? Uh, I, I can. Um, so people call me a planetary astronomer. 
which means, I think, that I look at things in the solar system with uh, telescopes. That's basically what I do. Um, that, that started for me when I was really small, actually, when I was uh, seven. So I grew up in England, and uh, we, we lived in North London. And I don't know if you've been to North London, but it's, um, it's densely populated, and there's a lot of light there. Uh, yes. And so the sky was not a big thing when I was growing up because it was basically cloudy all the time. And if it wasn't cloudy, you couldn't see much because the sky was so bright. But there was one night when I was seven years old, um, when I was riding my bike home from the park, um, and, you know, the, the sun had set and it was getting dark, when I saw uh, several meteors, I think probably eight or ten meteors, uh, flashing across the sky, all from the same direction. And I'd never noticed meteors before that. So when I got home, which was just like a couple of minutes later, I asked my mom, what, what were those things that I saw in, in the sky? And she said, oh, David, those are, those are shooting stars. Uh, and I said, well, what's a shooting star? And she didn't know. And I thought, well, that's a bit funny. You know, how can a star shoot? And how come... My mom, who's this authority figure to me when I was seven, how come she doesn't know? And so I, I think that was kind of a light bulb moment for me when I realized that actually there were things that, you know, my parents didn't know. And I could ask them questions that they couldn't answer. So I thought that was extremely exciting uh, and, uh, and a very cool thing that made me ask more questions that they also couldn't answer. So it was kind of a turning point in, in my life. And I tried to look at the sky from then on because I thought, well, the sky is probably a good place to look to find things that they, they don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's what I did, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. When I, when I started, I was so young that I was scared of the, very scared of the dark. But to see the sky, I had to be out there in the dark. So I, I remember running out into the back garden and I, I worked out this path where I could do a loop, so I didn't actually stop running because I was scared of the stuff out there. I'd run out and then run straight back into the kitchen, <laughs> and I'd hope for something cool outside while I'm in this little loop. Uh, and sometimes oh. I did. And then after a while, my grandparents noticed that I was interested in things uh, in the sky, and they bought me this telescope. And I remember it very clearly. I don't have it now, but I remember it very clearly. It was. 40 millimeters in diameter, so less than two inches in diameter. It was a white metal tube, and it was just a very small thing. It weighed about one pound. But I started to look at things in the sky with this telescope, which now seems like a ridiculous telescope to me. But everything <laughs> I saw was completely new and completely staggering. You know, I looked at the moon. I could see all the craters and, uh, and all, all sorts of interesting features and shadows, and everything changed. And that was just totally, totally astonishing uh, to me. And then I looked at um, uh, Jupiter and Mars, all the things that you can imagine I looked at uh, in the sky and um, basically just got more and more interested as time went on. So that was the, that's how I got into planetary astronomy. And I guess I'm a planetary astronomer and not just some regular old extragalactic astronomer because um, I couldn't see much else from London. So the sky is so bright, you can see the planets, you can see the moon. You know, I was looking at the sun as well in the daytime, but, but I couldn't see galaxies because the sky is too damn bright, and I couldn't see much of interest in the stars. You know, some red ones, some blue ones, but so what? And so the solar system really just had a lot of detail that I could see with my tiny little telescope uh, from North London. 
So that's about this it. This gives me this gives me so much hope for my son who who waffles between being amazed at the full moon through the telescope and being really worried about werewolves in the backyard. So this this is good. <laughs> I was scared of those. I was scared of all that stuff. <laughs> okay, well, that when I was young, you know, this and I'm re- really ancient, right? So when I was young, Apollo was was getting going, and the, at that time there wasn't much direct news from America in in um, in England. So basically, you heard about you know Kennedy was shot through the head and things like that, but you didn't hear much from the U.S. But we did start to hear things when um, spacecraft were being sent to the moon to prepare for the Apollo missions. So that was also kind of a parallel theme. It's another aspect of solar system study that was clearly very exciting and uh, and definitely was uh, impressive to me when I was a kid. Uh, And it built up to, you know, the classic Apollo mission, Apollo 8, when this thing... um, uh, carried three people out of Earth orbit for the first time, and they went off to the moon and then came back. That was the the defining space event in my childhood. So that's got to have some kind of impact on me as well. It's a combination of stuff that I saw in the sky and then stuff that came in through the TV uh, regarding Apollo. So how did you then decide that this is something that you wanted to do as a career? Well, I didn't. So I didn't know about that. So I <laughs> You know, nobody in my family ever went to a university. Uh, we, we're working, we're working class would be the, the official title. Very working class family. So everybody in my family worked in factories. All my friends come, came from similar families. We didn't know anybody who'd ever been to a university except maybe for our doctor. And we were all terrified of doctors because they're these big, um, you know, educated people. Um, so there was no there was no knowledge actually, and I didn't know that I could go to a university. I never thought about universities. I never I, I never imagined that I could go to one until I was about sixteen when uh, one of the teachers just mentioned, "Oh yeah, after you go to school, you might be able to go to a university." But again, in my school, basically nobody went to a university. I never met anybody from my school who went to a university. <laughs> <laughs> So all of this was just like a complete fog to me. I had no idea of the future. I had no idea that you could get a job doing astronomy or doing whatever I'm doing now. Uh, it was just completely off my planet, basically, when I was, you know, in in England, um, almost until the last moment. And then, then, just in time, uh, this teacher mentioned the the universities. And just in time, I took this uh, set of these exam things that you had to take back then. And then I got um, into this university in London called University College London. Uh, and so that was that was to do physics and astronomy. And that was pretty interesting. But I did, you know, there's no great planning in that or in anything else that I've done. Um, <laughs> it, it just kind of happened. Uh, through all out our solar system series that we've been talking about um, over the past several weeks, that is exactly what everybody says. Like, mm-hmm. there's very few people that plan where they are today, and I just love that. And I wish students would take that seriously. Like, you never know where you're going to show up or what opportunities are going to come your way. Right? No, you don't. And so you went to University College London, and then what happened after that? Well, then that's when I, after that I came to the U.S. 
But okay. you know that was also by chance because there, there was one professor in in astronomy in University College London who was American. He was an American guy called Mike Dworetsky. Um, and you know, in my second or third year there, he said, uh, "Why why don't you apply to go to uh, Caltech?" And I'd never heard of Caltech, uh, <laughs> and I actually had never heard of any American university uh, at that time except for Yale. And I, I think it's because Yale was um, the setting for some popular movie that I saw on TV at that time. <laughs> but I, okay. I had no idea about anything in the U.S. It's just, it's just this weird thing. The U.S. was maybe, you know, Dead Kennedy and Apollo. That's about it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> That's all there is here. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, no, there's a lot more, but I didn't know about that. And there was no easy way to find out either. Like, wh what would I do? There's no web. You know, the library didn't have anything about the U.S. in it. I never met anybody from the U.S. How, how would I find out anything? So really, it's just um, because of that guy, Mike Dworetsky, making the suggestion um, that I applied to Caltech. I didn't know what Caltech was, but once I found out that it was connected to JPL, which I'd heard of because of the space program, and connected to Palomar, I thought, hey, that's, got, that's two famous places, really cool. Maybe it's not so bad. So right. I applied Okay, and so I that's where that. you did all of your uh, graduate work then at Caltech? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how was that for a shocker for you, the change in the weather from California? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a little, yeah, it's a little tough, right? Because, the, I mean, the reputation for the weather in England is bad. Oh, it's raining, it's cold, it's nasty. But actually, it's a very, overall, a very mild and pleasant uh, climate. That's why everything grows so well, and England basically is so beautiful. Whereas uh, Southern California is a desert that uh, people are artificially pumping water into, and it's much more harsh, and, and you've got cactus and scary animals and snakes and stuff. Uh, and so it was, a big it was a big change for me. It's quite a big difference. But on the other hand, I really liked, I liked the U.S. I like being in America. I like the attitude that people have about things here. Uh, it's more expansive than it was, at least where I grew up. In, uh, in England and when I grew up in England. So I liked all that stuff. And then I liked the, the facilities that I could use at Caltech, especially I liked uh, Palomar Observatory, which is where I started to go quite a lot to use their telescopes. So since you got to an observatory, you could see more of the sky. What kept you interested in and around the solar system then? Well, everything. So, so there, there were no other people at Caltech using telescopes um, uh, to study the solar system then. But again, it was all, all these guys looking at galaxies and stars and things, very interesting, but not to me. So I, I felt that I had this, this whole piece of, of space that I could look at for myself. And the good thing about Caltech, there are many bad things about Caltech, but the good thing about Caltech was that uh, no, nobody cared. <laughs> nobody cared. What I did, <laughs> so so I I could just uh, get time on the sixty inch telescope. It was still there. Now they call it, I think, the one and a half meter. But the sixty inch telescope uh, basically was my plaything. And although I'd used my own little telescopes back in England, I essentially relearned how to use a big telescope by myself at Palomar. So I would go down there. It's like a three hour drive south of Caltech. 
And uh, I was very happy to get out of Pasadena because that's not such a great city to live in. Uh, and to go up a mountain and then to just mess around with this telescope. And I made every possible mistake, every stupid mistake <laughs> and every, every you know, even potentially dangerous mistake that a person could make. I did it at Palomar over the course of two, two or three years. It was a total screw up in many different regards. But that's how you learn, of course. That's, that's the mm -hmm. best way to learn by making exactly. lots and lots of mistakes. Then it just gets stuck in your head. Don't do that again. And you really learn how to squeeze uh, data out of a telescope and then how to squeeze science out of the data. So that was a very good experience for me as well. Just uh, having access to, to Palomar was kind of fantastic. I wish more students would embrace being left alone to just mess up on stuff. Yeah, it's got, I mean, there's a sad feature now in astronomy that um, because the telescopes are far away and because they're expensive and the instruments are expensive on telescopes there there's an increasing tendency for observatories to try to keep astronomers away from away from them <laughs> there's a fear they're going to mess something up break something or, or screw something up and that's a very well justified fear based on people like me because that's exactly what i did but now you have generations of of students who never actually see a telescope astronomy students don't see a telescope so some deep level, they don't know what's going on. They just mm -hmm. get, you just get data that comes in through the internet, you know, and that's boring. So there is this tendency for uh, astronomy to become more boring when it's left in the hands of um, the people who run telescopes. Because they're trying, <laughs> they're trying to preserve their own instruments, but they do it in the wrong way. They do it by keeping the astronomers out. It's kind right, of weird. exactly. I but like I imagine that. the advent of more computerized control systems have significantly changed that as well. I mean, you don't have to go to the telescope now at all. Yeah, like I've got an observing run in Hawaii next month. <clears throat> I'm in LA, and so I don't have to go to Hawaii. I will go. I'm going to go because I, I kind of always go because I like the experience of, of being, you know, nearer the telescope. Um, but uh, very few people from UCLA, certainly, or from California in general, bother to go out to Hawaii anymore because you don't have to. So the Internet has changed the character of, uh, of astronomy in some ways in a bad direction, in some ways a good direction because you can do much more with the Internet than you could before. But, you know, you lose something at the same time. Right. So you, you've done a lot of different things over your career, but... If you had to say what your what your main research thrust has been in the solar system, how would you classify it? I would just say I. I it's really hard to classify it. So I, I would say that I try to do whatever I want to do um, <laughs> at any given time. <laughs> That's sounds, a true academic. I said that it sounds really <laughs> sounds really really selfish. I didn't mean it like that, but it sounds kind of selfish. But that's how you do good stuff, right? So if you get too trapped into a path, then you're not really free to, I mean, it sounds kind of like a cliche, but you're not totally free to just do the coolest thing. And I think doing the coolest thing is important because that is what maximizes your enthusiasm. And then when you maximize your enthusiasm, then you get the probability of you know, having a good result. Whereas if you're kind of bored with what you're doing, and if you're doing something that's too repetitive, 
or you're doing something that everybody else has been doing forever, then, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to find? So I try to keep, I try to be like generally aware of interesting things. And I try to keep up to date by reading the journals all the time. I do that quite a lot. And I try to read papers by so-called theory people. Uh, but I try not to uh, give too much weight to the theories. So basically, I just try to keep my finger on the pulse of the subject, <coughs> excuse me, and look for things that catch my interest, look for weird things that don't make any sense. And I look for opportunities where I can do something that other people, for whatever reason, haven't done. So I think that's probably the most coherent description of, of what I try to do. Yeah. So, so it turns out that, you know, given that I'm focused on the solar system, um, there are huge numbers of things that, that you could do, that I have done, and many more things that, that can be done, because there's this strange circumstance that scientists divide themselves up into little subfields. So, you know, the astronomers are experts at that. The astro astronomers distinguish uh, cosmologists studying the biggest scales from extragalactic astronomers who study the galaxies uh, far away, from galactic astronomers who study mostly our galaxy, from stellar astronomers who study the stars in our galaxy, interstellar medium astronomers who study the, the space between the stars. Uh, <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, and it's gotten even crazy now because the sun used to be part of astronomy. And now astro astronomers have basically excluded the sun. So the sun, the sun has been pushed out of almost every astronomy department in the U.S. and is now floating around somewhere else. And, and the solar system uh, has had something of the same treatment as well. So there are not many places doing astronomy and the solar system stuff, planetary science as well. And so there's this tendency for science to become more and more and more finely subdivided. And what that means for me in particular is that in the solar system, you know, people study the planets and things like that, all the money comes from NASA. And NASA is really interested in sending a spacecraft somewhere. And so that's good because you can go to Mars, you can go to Venus and, and things like that. But you can't go really to very far away places in the solar system. So NASA is not very good at studying the outer parts of the solar system, which is what I'm especially interested in. And then the astronomers already, you know, pushed themselves out of the market. They've declared that the solar system is not part of astronomy. And so they don't, they don't care about the outer solar system either, and they haven't studied that. So it's kind of this dead zone where people just gave up or, you know, didn't think clearly about what's going on, which has been ripe for exploration in the last few decades by me and a bunch of other people. So, again, that's kind of an opportunistic thing. I didn't know about that when I started. I just kind of stumbled into that fact that, you know, scientists are just very, very narrowly focused on their own thing. NASA is uh, only able to send rockets to, to nearby places in the solar system because the rocket technology is just not good enough. And astronomers are obsessed with this weird hierarchy where somehow the more distant it is, the more important it is. Uh, so if it's close by, like the solar system, well, it's just a piece of dirt, and who cares? You know, <laughs> so all of that, really, that's a, all of that conspires to, to leave this gap uh, where I found many things, including the, the Kuiper belt, that maybe we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Yeah, so I definitely want to hit some of the uh, the other things that you've done in your career, but 
one of the things we really wanted to make sure we talked about was this interstellar object that came through our solar system. Oh, yeah. You, you want I'm to not even going to try to pronounce it, so I, I'm going to wait until someone else. I think you should, because we've heard one pronunciation. I think you should try two. I mean, so the, the umau mau part of this, <laughs> you know, old 50s song is what keeps going through my head. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I've been saying in my, in my head all day is umau mau uh -huh. <laughs> So that's, that's my take. umau mau Yep. <laughs> And so what's what's the third pronunciation? What is your I'm not going to say it. I simply refuse to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that is such a dumb name for an object in the sky. Why not, why not pick something that people can pronounce, for Christ's sake? I mean, if you have, have a word that begins with an apostrophe, it's, it's immediately hopeless, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I was going to go in and, like, fix what John did there, and I was like, nope, that's what it's supposed to be. Okay. <laughs> It, start, it started out, I mean, the story is, maybe you heard, but the story is it started out with an asteroid name, 2017U1. Uh, and then people um, said, well, you know, it's such a strange orbit. It must be a comet. So they put a C. So there was C slash 2017U1. But then they noticed, well, wait a minute, that's not an orbit like any other comet. Uh, so it's, um, it's something different. Uh, and it doesn't seem to show an atmosphere like a comet, so maybe it's an asteroid on a comet orbit, so they briefly called it A slash 2017 U1. Uh, and then, then, they, then they said, well, no, this is a totally different kind of beast. We need a new letter. And so they picked the letter I. And so it became uh, I, or actually one I, because it's the first of the I's. One I slash 2017 U1. But then everybody's confused because I on a computer screen looks like L uh, and it looks like one. So is it one one slash 2017 U1 or one L slash two? So, so then all hell broke loose. And then <laughs> just the real punch in the gut was this, this last name that begins with the apostrophe. <laughs> so the whole, na whole naming thing has been a disaster for this body, I think, and for astronomy as well. So I just call it U1. Oh. The one constant okay. in his name is the U1 part. Okay, so that sounds great. <laughs> U1 is definitely much more pronounceable. <laughs> so uh -huh. uh, how this, this categorization thing has gone too far. I say we make a stand against it. Yep. <laughs> <That's outrageous. laughs> I think so. So oh. how did we discover this object? Well, there's a survey telescope in Hawaii, which is where that apostrophe name comes from. And um, the purpose of the survey telescope <coughs> is to survey the sky looking for asteroids that might, in the future, hit the Earth. So it's a NASA-funded telescope that is basically trying to look at the whole sky frequently so it can find moving objects, and then people fit orbits and decide, hey, is that going to hit the Earth or not? But while it's looking for asteroids that might strike the Earth, it finds many, many other things, some of them much more interesting than asteroids that might strike the Earth. And so I found this object. It looked just like an asteroid. But um, the, in Hawaii, they noticed that it's moving a bit too fast. And when they fitted an orbit to it, they found that the orbit has this very strange shape. So uh, all the bodies in the solar system move on ellipses. They go around the sun, and they move on elliptical paths, nearly circular. For, for the most part, comets are fairly elliptical, fairly eccentric. 
a comet that just drops in from infinity, if you just drop something, if you went out to infinity and dropped something and you only had the sun in the universe, this comet would, would, uh, would come in, maybe it would nip around the sun, but it would follow a parabola. So this thing is more eccentric than an ellipse and even more eccentric than a parabola. So it means it's moving on a hyperbolic orbit. The eccentricity is bigger than one. And that means that it essentially was hurled at the solar system. So at infinity, this thing would still be moving relative to the solar system at 26 kilometers per second. And there's simply no other uh, object seen in the solar system with that big of an entry velocity. So the, special, the, the really special thing about U1 is that it's got this extreme orbit. It's a hyperbolic orbit, and it's the only one that's very hyperbolic. And if I remember right, this came in at a really high angle to the ecliptic, right? So that was also unusual. Yeah, that's normal for long-period comets. That okay. would be typical for There's, there's a, a spherical swarm of comets around the sun called the Oort cloud. And uh, those guys fall in from all directions, actually, from in the plane, above the plane, below the plane. They come in forwards and backwards. You've got everything. So th this guy originally was thought to be a comet like that, a long-period comet. Uh, but then it was found, well, wait a minute, it's not even got a period. I mean, the period is, is greater than infinity. It's never going to come back because it's traveling faster than the escape speed from the solar system. So I, I think when it was passing the Earth, um, I'm trying to remember, but it shot past at some speed like 200,000 miles per hour, something ridiculous like that. And, and no comparably fast thing has been seen in the solar system before or since. Okay, so we've got this really fast thing that was hurled at the solar system. Can we do any kind of back projection to figure out where or when it might have come from? A lot of people yeah. tried. Yeah, a lot of people tried. So that, that was a, a major objective. The trouble is, when you think about it, you know, it came, it's very small. It's only a few hundred meters across. And it was fairly faint, even when it was discovered, fairly faint. So the, the, the period when you can, uh, can detect it, the period when you can see it, is fairly short, just a few months. But compare that to how long it takes to go out, for example, to the nearest star. It's a tiny, tiny fraction. So it's like you're trying to measure, imagine a bullet, you know, somebody shoots a bullet from half a mile away. And you can only measure the position and speed of the bullet for the last two inches of its trajectory. And then you try to extrapolate that back, it's going to have a big, big uncertainty. So the problem is that we get the general direction from which it came. That's pretty clear. But um, the uncertainty is big enough that we cannot say it came from this star or that star or maybe from no star at all. So we just have a general idea of where it came from in the sky. But we can't back project it very accurately. That's a bit of an issue. The real, um, I mean, there are many cool things. So the orbit is a very, very cool thing for U1, but the physical properties that people measured were also very interesting. So um, it was found um, immediately to have this kind of uh, reddish color that we see in many, many solar system objects, in, in outer solar system objects. So it makes people think, oh, maybe it's got organic materials, you know, carbon-containing materials on the surface. And um, it was observed to change its brightness. So imagine that you're looking at, you know, um, a star, I've got one in front of me, a Starbucks cup, 
rotating around its minor axis. So sometimes you see it from the short end, so it looks like a little circle, and then sometimes when it rotates, you see it sideways on, so you see the whole side of the cup, so it's much bigger area. So the brightness is, is at a minimum when you see the thing end on, it's at a maximum when you see it side on. And so if you will plot the brightness versus time, it goes up and down, almost like a sine curve. We know that, we've seen that for thousands and thousands of asteroids and comets, but the, the real deal, the surprising thing about U1 is that the amplitude of that curve was extremely big. So it's probably, the amplitude is 10 to one. And what that means is the, the axis ratio of the body is probably something like eight to one. And wow. the, there are okay. essentially no other things in the solar system elongated like that. So it's like a fire extinguisher kind of proportion. You know, one of those red handheld fire extinguishers, roughly eight to one axis ratio. Uh, and that's kind of astonishing. And so you've got two really, really curious properties in one body. It's um, got this unique orbit so far, and it's got this very strange shape. And it's rotating, we could tell from the sine curve, the period is something like a third of a day. And people are still futzing around over that, but it's about a third of a day. But the, the shape is a really, really curious thing. And the, the fact that, you know, this is the first one of a new class of body that we've seen, and it's got this really weird shape. It must mean something, but we don't know what that means quite yet. And was it rotating along one of its major axes or minor axes, or was no, it, it must in a be, more complicated uh, it must, pattern? Well, it must be rotating close to one of the minor axes. There, there's, there's some discussion about, is it exactly rotating around a minor axis, or is it wobbling? And uh, when you combine all the photometry, as people have done, it looks like it's probably wobbling. Uh, but again, that's not that surprising because, you know, we see many, many or even most small bodies in the solar system, small asteroids and comets, uh, kilometer size or less, are wobbling. And the reason there is that it takes forever. For, if, you, if you hit it or something, you start the wobble, it takes forever for the wobble to die down by internal friction, by damping. Um, so the, the wobble is not the surprise. It's the shape which is the surprise. Uh, and still not really explained. So the first, hey. yeah, the, when, when, I, when I looked at this, I had this telescope uh, time with my collaborator, uh, Jane Lou. We had this telescope, um, a, a Norwegian, um, a Nordic telescope, as they call it, the Nordic Optical Telescope, um, uh, uh, which took very nice data on this thing. And I, I could see this big light curve, and then other people independently saw this big light curve at the same time or even before. Um, my first thought was, is it a spaceship? Because think about that. The proportions, if they're eight to one or 10 to one, are kind of like the proportions of a, of a rocket booster. Right. And if you think about the size, I knew it was a few hundred meters across, it's kind of like, I mean, it's bigger than a rocket, but it's kind of like the size of a Saturn V booster, taking it back to Apollo. <laughs> it's kind of like the same size as that. And we only, we only know the size by guessing the albedo. That's how much light does it reflect. So if we guess the albedo wrong, if in fact a rocket, it would be more reflective than I'd assumed, and that would make it smaller. So maybe it's just the size of a Saturn V booster, about 100 meters long, and with the proportions of a Saturn V booster. And so that actually sounds ridiculous, 
but that's that was a real possibility. And so I thought maybe this is actually bigger than it seems, and maybe it's the first um, evidence for an interstellar spaceship from some other civilization. Now, that's a, that's a wild and wacky thought, and you don't want to go too far with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm never going outside again. Thanks for well, that. Now. <laughs> and, uh, and people will come and lock you up as well. That's the other danger. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> But, you know, the thing, the thing that uh, did that idea in for me actually was nothing to do with the physical properties. What, what uh, killed that idea, at least mostly killed that idea for me, is that um, I worked out how many objects like this there must be in the solar system at any one time. So the argument is it's small and it's faint, and it was detected by this survey telescope in Hawaii. And so... I knew the distance to the object. I knew that if it were much further away, it wouldn't have been seen. And so I can calculate the probability that a, a given object would fly close enough to the Earth in the right time frame to be detected by this telescope in Hawaii. And when I did that, uh, my estimate was that there must be 10,000 similar objects closer to the sun than Neptune. Neptune is 30 times the Earth's sun distance. 10,000 of these things in the solar system at any one time. And they pass through the solar system in about 10 years. That means there's about a thousand of these things entering the solar system per year and leaving the solar system per year in steady state. Uh, and so that's a vast population. So if that thing is a spaceship, you know, what kind of civilization is sending <laughs> a thousand big spaceships into our solar system every year and for what purpose? Uh, and, and none of them comes that close to the Earth. I mean, the closest it came was about half the distance between the Earth and the Sun. 0.4 AU is pretty pretty far. So it would have to be kind of a useless alien uh, civilization that couldn't hit the Earth or couldn't get closer. <laughs> to that, so that doesn't really make any sense. So just the sheer number of these things is astonishing. And then if you extrapolate that uh, around the galaxy, because there's nothing special about the solar system in particular in this regard, then there must be 10 to the 25 or 10 to the 26 similar objects in the midplane of the Milky Way galaxy. And again, that just seems impossible for any um, civilization to, to do that. So I think that the statistics argue against it being a spaceship because there's just too many of them to give any plausible chance that one would be detected by a survey telescope. Thank God for statistics, I guess. <laughs> This is crazy that there are that many, and this is sort of the first one that we've really seen. That's because that's space is big, right? So that's the standard right, exactly. thing astronomy. It's a space is so huge, and people think everything is known, and the extragalactic astronomers say, oh, yeah, I've discovered anything. But it's absolutely not true. And so there's a vast number of things out there waiting to be discovered. Now, there's one more result that just came out. Let me just mention this thing, because this is kind of staggering. There's one more paper that was just published in Nature a few weeks, maybe a month ago. People looked very carefully at the orbit of this thing as it flew through the solar system. And they fitted the orbit. And like before, they found the orbit is a hyperbolic orbit. So it's still you know, the same result. But they found uh, clear evidence in the data for a of this body above and beyond what can be supplied by the gravity of the sun and the planets. So that's called a non-gravitational acceleration. So it has a little bit of a, uh, a force acting on it other than gravity. 
Now, we see that in comets. So comets suddenly evaporate stuff towards the sun. So all this stuff goes off towards the sun, and then the, the reaction force pushes it away from the sun. It's kind of a rocket effect uh, due to asymmetric mass loss. But in U1, we don't see any mass loss. So that's pretty weird. So one possibility is, is just the pressure of sunlight pushing on this body. You know, the light photons have a little bit of momentum, and so they exert a very gentle pressure on whatever they touch. Uh, and so maybe the pressure of sunlight is accelerating this thing a little bit differently from what the sun's gravity and the planet's gravity can do. The trouble there is, for any reasonable density, like density of a rock is about a, you know, a few tons per cubic meter, for any reasonable density, that acceleration is utterly negligible compared to what is observed. So for this acceleration to be caused by the pressure of sunlight, the density of U1 has to be about a thousand times less than the density of a rock, maybe a hundred times less than the density of a, rock, <coughs> of a rock. So you've got to ask yourself, what kinds of things are a hundred or a thousand times less dense than a rock? And then I would just mention, well, the empty booster of a, <laughs> of a Saturn V <laughs> Apollo rocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's this very, very weird thing that, you know, it's got this non-gravitational motion about it, as if it's got a little source of propulsion on it. And uh, we don't know what that propulsion is because we don't see any mass coming out of it. So it doesn't seem like it's the kind of rocket effect that we can see in a comet, but it could be. Uh, it just doesn't seem that way. We don't have the data to support that. Uh, and for it to be affected by the radiation pressure, the pressure of sunlight, it has to be really, really low density. And there are no natural objects that are that low density. So, you know, who knows? Well, and so you mentioned how fast this was coming through the solar system anyway. How does something get going that fast? Is it a lot of gravitational slingshotting going through space? Or yeah. how do you get going that fast? Yeah. So we, we think that this, you know, this, people have talked about objects like this for a long time, uh, based on our understanding of the way the solar system formed. So we think the solar system formed from the accumulation of smaller bodies into bigger and bigger bodies to make the planets. But that was a very um, messy and inefficient process. And a lot of um, material that didn't get incorporated into planets was ejected during the planet formation process. And most of the stuff that was ejected was launched from beyond what's called the snow line, meaning that they were cold objects that were containing ice and snow. So essentially, huge numbers of comets are ejected from a planetary system when it forms. And when I say huge numbers, I mean, you know, like um, a trillion. Um, or a few trillion, or 10, you know, 10 to the 13th, something like a huge number of comets. So they would just go off and wander uh, in the space between the stars forever until occasionally they fly back through some planetary system like U1 apparently did through ours. So they get the velocity in the beginning because they need a big kick to be ejected from a planetary system. So in our solar system, the planet responsible for throwing out the most stuff um, into the interstellar medium was probably Jupiter, because it's got the, the most gravity, the most mass and the most gravity. So in some other planetary system around some other star, we don't know which one, and we probably never will know which one, and we don't know when, 
probably billions of years ago, uh, uh, planets formed and they kicked out a whole bunch of debris, including U1. Then when the object is off traveling around the midplane of the Milky Way galaxy, it gets further perturbed by the gravity of all the stars that it passes. Now it doesn't go very close on the average to any particular star. I mean, this, this object U1 has prob probably never been so close to another star before. It came um, about half an AU from our sun. It's probably never done that before. But the sum of all the perturbations from all the stars that it passes in the billions of years of flying around is what's responsible for pumping up the velocity uh, of this thing. Okay, so we got you conducted uh, observations with optical telescopes. I'm assuming there were also some radar and radio observations as well. Too, too small and too far for um, radar. Okay, uh, so nothing there. Um, infrared. Yeah, I mean that was. There were some pretty impressive artistic impressions of this U uh, one, and so that that was my question too. Is like, what else did we use to observe it to, you know? Uh, inspire well, that, all this art <laughs> well the, there's the great danger right so i mean a, a yeah. graphic graphic artist can do whatever, whatever they want <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so exactly. yeah that, that that picture of the interstellar cigar has become the new reality we don't know if it's really <laughs> like that um in fact it probably is not but that that was the picture that's in people's minds um we don't have much more data than that so it's it's uh, in astronomy we're very very good at detecting optical radiation. We are, we really can detect just about every photon. And then other wavelengths, yeah, we're not so good. So I don't think it was, in fact, it was not detected in the thermal infrared. That would have been nice because then we could measure the size and the albedo separately. But now we can't do that. Um, it was not detected in uh, spectroscopically, so there's no evidence for gas coming out of this thing. Uh, there's no evidence in the shape of the images in the optical for any dust coming out of this thing either. Uh, the, the, the wackiest measurement uh, was done by people who decided, well, you know, we better look at that in case it is a spaceship and it's transmitting. And so there's, there's some group funded by a rich Russian person um, who uh, looked at this thing to see if it's emitting radio signals um, from some uh, broadca <laughs> broadcast, a radio broadcast <laughs> of interstellar civilization. And they detected nothing. So the data we have is limited, but the things that we've measured with confidence uh, are good. I mean, they're solid uh, and they're very interesting. And we don't really have a coherent picture that ties everything together yet. So I don't, you know, I'm not saying it's um, an interstellar spaceship, but I'm saying it's it's a strange object, unlike anything else we've seen. I don't know, Dave. You've said the words interstellar spaceship quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, why, why would anybody send a spaceship that missed the earth by half an astronomical unit you know yeah, maybe they were just learning to drive <laughs> <laughs> just us. Just, exactly they'll be back they're just buzzing yeah, they're us okay. as they went by. <laughs> uh, i'm pretty sure it's a natural object but you know it does raise the question if we if we made contact with um uh, you know, some external civilization, would we know? I mean, how would we know? Right. Just a very general question. Because for sure, most advanced civilizations are 
are beyond our comprehension. I mean, that, that you can be sure of. It's like uh, I always tell people in my class, you know, it's like when you, in the summertime when you have an ant that falls off a tree and starts crawling over your face, you know, the ant just feels that it's on a warm surface with, with lumps on it. It doesn't know that it's walking on the surface of a vastly more intelligent uh, being than it is because it just cannot perceive you. It cannot perceive you in that way. It doesn't have the equipment, the mental equipment to make that leap. So it's going to be like that with us probably when we do detect um, advanced uh, civilizations that we won't actually know what we're looking at um, for a long time because we just can't fathom it. We just can't put it all together. And so that's another reason why this is probably not an alien spaceship. It's because it's too similar to things that we could imagine, like a Saturn V booster. And, uh, you know, the, the other, uh, um, other life forms almost certainly have evolved far, far beyond that to do things that we, we cannot comprehend. Another, another picture is, you know, imagine telling Galileo uh, or Newton or Darwin or any of those guys that uh, you could communicate them communicate with them using radio, something that they couldn't see, had never seen, couldn't understand, uh, didn't exist for them. Right. What would they make it? I mean, they couldn't conceive of that. Right. So if you, if you whipped out your cell phone and started talking to somebody, you know, 150 years ago, it would just blow people's minds. So it's going to be like that for us with, with the aliens, but a million times worse. Yep, never looking at a telescope again. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I, one thing that I wanted to make sure we had a little bit of time to talk about is you've been very successful at discovering bodies in our solar system uh, using telescopes. So could you tell us a little bit about some of the bodies you've discovered and how you did that? Uh, okay, so um, the, um, I like the Kuiper Belt, for example. You want to... Is that what you mean? Yeah, so we can uh, definitely start with the Kuiper Belt. So the Kuiper Belt is this um, ring of bodies that starts essentially at the orbit of Neptune and then extends, we don't know how far out, but thousands of astronomical units out. Astronomical unit with some distance. So uh, I discovered that in um, 1992 with my uh, then student, Jane Liu, after a long search, we looked, looked for five years for anything in the solar system beyond Saturn. So we, we were struck by the idea, probably in the mid-1980s, um, that it's weird that the solar system is full of stuff in its inner parts. So we have the asteroids and all sorts of comets. We have you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of asteroids and the planets. Whereas beyond the orbit of Saturn, at that time, we basically just knew of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. It just seemed kind of weird. Why would the solar system be like that? So we set ourselves the target of finding anything, <laughs> anything beyond Saturn. So we made this survey to look at the sky and just look for anything. It's kind of a simplistic, kind of a dumb survey, really. Just, just have a look and see if there's anything there beyond Saturn. It's an act of desperation. And the thoughts were, well, you know, maybe there's nothing there at all. Maybe the apparent emptiness of the outer solar system is real, and maybe that's because the gravity of the giant planets is so strong that it's cleared out the whole space. It's ejected everything out there from the solar system. 
So in the mid-80s, that was possible. Nobody was able to calculate that because their computers were not fast enough to do that. So that was one possibility. Then the thing that seemed more likely to us uh, was that, well, it's just because stuff out there is faint and it's hard to see. So the light from coming out from the sun fades with the inverse square law of the distance. But when it gets reflected back to us, it fades again by the inverse square law. And so the actual brightness varies with the inverse fourth power of the distance from the sun. So that means if you go 10 times further away from the sun, a given thing will get 10,000 times fainter. It becomes very hard to see very quickly. So I, I, I sort of guessed that that was the explanation. And I thought we would see stuff just beyond Saturn, which is at 10 times the Earth-Sun distance. But we looked and we looked and we looked and we found hundreds of asteroids. And we don't care about the asteroids. And, and we just wanted to see anything beyond Saturn, but we didn't. We saw nothing. Uh, and so for years, we saw nothing. Uh, but we kept doing it. We're obstinate or stupid, depending on how you look at it, uh -huh. until eventually, in 92, uh, in, uh, in actually this month, in August of 1992, we found one object that had exactly the properties we expected if it were in the outer solar system. So we were looking opposite to the sun. We expected these things to be moving west. We expected them to be moving slowly because the motion is due to parallax. Uh, it's like when you uh, look out of a car window, the stuff that's close to you moves really fast and the scenery far away moves very slowly. So it's a parallactic motion. So further away it is, the slower it moves. And we expected it to be not too bright, otherwise people would have seen it already. Uh, and so we found this thing, and it had exactly the properties we wanted. It was going slowly, it was faint, it was, it was obviously far away. Um, we calculated how big it is, a couple hundred kilometers across. And it was um, in a place where nothing had been seen before. It was 43, 44 astronomical units from the sun in a space that was thought to be, well, actually nobody thought about that space. It was just a space out there. And then um, once we found that first one, uh, we were very excited. Other people became excited. Then we uh, we found more. And so we found the next one six months after that. And then over the next few years, we found uh, 40 or 50 of these things. And so we know, we knew and we know that, you know, it's not a freak, that this is uh, an example of an object which is typical in the outer solar system and which has come to be called the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and in fact, now we know that the population is ridiculous. So there are 100,000 things like the one we saw, about 100 kilometers across, roughly as big as the big island in Hawaii where I'm going to do observing next month. And there are billions of objects bigger than a kilometer out there beyond Neptune. And uh, these objects are we think primitive, you know, we think they're products of formation in the early solar system. So they're four and a half billion years old, as is everything in the solar system, but they haven't changed much. They're so cold. The temperature out there is, is 40 Kelvin or 50 Kelvin, just a little bit above absolute zero. So chemistry doesn't work. You know, whatever chemicals were frozen into these things when they formed are still there. Um, and so it's a, it's a reservoir of primordial material in the solar system that was not previously known um, because basically almost all of the objects in this region were too faint to have been seen until the last 20, 25 years, until we found the first one in, in 92. Now, even that statement is not actually 100% correct because 
what people have done is is they've gone backwards into the archive. You know, the people there's archives of data that people took 50, 60, 70 years ago. And when you go backwards, you can find these objects. Some of the ones we found and other people found. You can find them in photographic plates that people took in the 1950s and maybe even before. And so in principle, the Kuiper belt could have been discovered in the 1950s, even before the space age began, but it wasn't. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why not? And it's the same as the thing with the aliens. It's, it's the, the difference between um, detection and perception. So people always think that the eyes are like a camera recording the world. At least a lot of people think that. I used to think that. But actually what you see is very much a product of your brain. And so it's very, very hard to see things that you haven't already seen because you just cannot easily perceive them. So that's the case with the Kuiper belt. These objects were recorded in the data a long time ago, but not noticed because nobody believed or thought that they could be there. And then that story is even, gets even crazier when you take that one backwards. So remember Pluto, we now think Pluto is one of these bodies, right? Pluto is a big Kuiper belt object. Right. Pluto was discovered in 1930, but it was actually recorded first um, uh, decades before that. I forget how many, but three or four decades before that in photographic plates, and nobody noticed it because nobody was looking. And then even crazier, remember Neptune? So Neptune, uh, this, this uh, ice giant planet in the outer solar system, four times the size of the Earth, 16 times the mass of the Earth. That thing was discovered in, I think, 1846, but it was first observed in 1610. By who? Who was looking at the sky in 1610? Uh-oh, Galileo. So Galileo saw Neptune, and we know that because he drew it. He actually drew it in his, in his notebook. We have the drawings, and it's right there, and there's no doubt about it. He could have discovered Neptune. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. yeah. So, so it's just staggering. So the whole thing is, you know, perception and detection are not the same thing. You can detect things you can't perceive. Uh, and there are many things we can't perceive. So think of how much data is sitting in our data now if you're going to, you know, push this forward. That's oh, yeah. amazing. Yep. Mm. Yep. But the key is, you know, the question is, how do you do that? So how do you right. how do you break through the perception barrier? Right. You read a lot of science fiction novels. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Maybe. And I mean, this seems like a great application. I'm sure people are doing this with machine learning, uh, trying to have the machines pick out things that we didn't see yeah, maybe if if machine learning is as independent as as it sounds from the from the phrase machine learning, it sounds good, but I I don't know. We'll have to see. And so you did a lot of work in the Kuiper Belt, but you also found a Jovian moon, correct? Oh, I found yeah, I found like forty or fifty uh, moons. Yeah. So um, yeah. So. The, there are two kinds of moon, right? The, the regular moons go around, they have the same sense of rotation as their host planets. Right. Uh, and they move in the, pretty much in the equatorial plane, like, like our moon, they move in the equatorial plane of their own planet. Um, and those moons are thought to have formed from accretion disks surrounding the planets, just like the planets formed in an accretion disk around the sun. So they're kind of like mini, mini solar systems. 
Uh, the famous Galilean satellites of Jupiter are like that, the four big ones. But the much more numerous moons are called irregular satellites. And they don't really care that much about what the planet is doing. They go around backwards. They've got very eccentric orbits. They're inclined, um, you know, at crazy angles. And so the irregular satellites um, are very common. So what, what I did working with another student called Scott Shepard, uh, maybe uh, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, is use telescopes on Mauna Kea, Hawaii, to look for irregular satellites, first of Jupiter, but then of the other planets. And we found dozens of these things, dozens and dozens. So we increased the number of satellites, the irregular satellites, known from about 10 when we started to about 100 when we <laughs> finished. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that, that was also kind of an awesome thing uh, to do. And again, people hadn't noticed these because they weren't really looking for them. So all the other planets have as much space junk as we do floating around us, just of a different type. Yeah, they have natural space junk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Is, is unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of folks that listen to the show that are trying to decide career paths. If you had to give some advice to somebody that's an aspiring space scientist, what would you say? I hate that. <laughs> I really hate that when people ask for advice like that. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I just do. So why is that? Because I think because uh, the chaos part is important for me, I think. Yes. So I, 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 I actually resent that question quite a lot. Um, and I do get that from from students, uh, undergrads especially, and the, when they mention the word career, I kind of turn off. Because uh, is it, a, I mean, do you guys have careers? Is that what you would call it? No. Not yeah, really. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, ha you have a, a life-consuming interest, right? You have a fascination. Yes. Uh, an obsession. Maybe. Obsession, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But but to call it a career somehow denigrates the whole thing. Oh, you're like a, a doctor or a lawyer or a you know some kind of a creepy person. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's a good question. So usually when people ask me about that, should I do astronomy for my for my career? I tell them, well, if you're really really interested in it, whatever it is, just do it. And that's I just leave it like that. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, so I'm not, that, I'm not that helpful to these people. <laughs> I mean, but, but the serendipity part of it is so important. So just let it, let it ride, right? I really think so, yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, the idea that you're going to, if you're like some 20-year-old kid at UCLA or something, and then you're going to come to some 60-year-old man and say, what should I do with my life? I mean, how ridiculous is that? How the hell would I know what to do with your life? You'll make up your own mind, for Christ's sake. Really, that's what that I feel like that. I'm going to play this clip for so many people because I feel like that should be really comforting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because, I mean, come on. you got to do something you want to do and, yeah. and do something original. Don't, don't try to fit into some stupid plan that you make up when you're 20 and you stick, stick with it for the rest of your life because that's never going to work. Amen. The other, <laughs> the other question that I don't like is, is people say, you know, can you give me any ideas, any clues about how to do research? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's even more ridiculous. <laughs> that's, like, that's like trying to describe, you know, to ride a bike. But if you try to describe how to ride a bike, it's next to impossible. Yeah. It's the right. same deal. So I don't like this attitude that people are, are going around asking for 
life pointers and should I do this and should I do that? It just, uh, just pisses me off. Okay, well, maybe this one won't. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <getting tired> of <laughs> no worries, no worries. I loved it. I think that's an excellent idea. Um, so if you could travel anywhere in or near our solar system and stay and do research, where would you go to? Um, um, <clears throat> wow, that's kind of an open-ended yeah. <laughs> Question. Um, you know, on uh, on a small level, I always love the moon, right? So I'd really, really love to the, go to the moon, and that's not totally. I mean, I'm probably too old, but it's conceivable that people will soon be able to go to the moon for a vacation if they're super rich. You know, multi-billionaire types they can pay Richard Branson or somebody, and they'll go to the moon. Yeah. Um, or the SpaceX guy. Uh, but so that I'd be happy with that. I'd be more than happy with that if I was uh, assured of coming back alive. So I have this this feeling that you know there's a non-negligible chance of dying when you do something like that. In which case, I don't want to know. Don't tell me about it. But if I could come back uh, and be sure of coming back alive, I would really like to go to uh, the Kuiper Belt and have a look. If I could go to the Kuiper Belt in a spacecraft that would get there quickly and would allow me to go around and visit different objects, I'd be very happy with that because that's the kind of information we're not going to get from telescopes, you know. The telescopes are great for characterizing a population and determining how many objects there are, what's the size distribution, what's the orbit distribution, all those things that we need to understand the origin and um, evolution of the solar system we can determine with telescopes. But the detailed nature of a body can only be revealed really by going there with a spacecraft. So the classic example there is Pluto. You know, we knew pretty much everything about Pluto before the spacecraft got there a couple of years ago. We knew that because we'd studied Pluto with telescopes from the ground in all sorts of different ways. We knew the mass and the radius and the density. We knew the composition. We knew that there was an atmosphere. We knew the composition of the atmosphere. We knew the temperature of the atmosphere. We knew that there were uh, these various moons. We knew something about the different moons. We knew a lot of stuff um, about Pluto. Essentially, what we know now, we already knew. The spacecraft refined that knowledge, but what it really did was not so much a scientific thing. It was, a, again, a perception thing. It converted Pluto from this abstract body in the sky, about which we knew a lot, but for which we had no good pictures, into a real world where you could see the surface, and you see the mountains, and you see the atmosphere, and you see the geology, and it's all weird and freaky, and it, made, it gave it a character. And so when you visit somewhere, you really make that conversion, and you take an object out of the astronomical realm, which is where I live and work, and put it into other fields, like geology. So now we can study the geology of Pluto, and the geophysics of Pluto and the geochemistry, maybe, of Pluto, and atmospheric science on Pluto, and so on. And so that's the process that's going on in the solar system as we send out these spacecraft. They are steadily converting the solar system from an astronomical subject of interest into these other uh, attendant fields. So I, I think it would be kind of cool to be on a spacecraft that did that. And, and since I found a Kuiper belt, I'd like to go there. <laughs> Absolutely, that Excellent. would be a, an amazing mission. Uh, yeah, really cold though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, 
thank you for taking the time to to talk to us. This has been a, a really fascinating uh, conversation, and we appreciate you taking time out of your day to do it. Okay, well, thanks for asking me to do it. I don't know, John. I know we just talked about this for, you know, an hour, but I still think it's an interstellar spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> certainly an interesting. <laughs> it's, it's a very strange object. Uh, yeah, I'm actually really concerned about how few people didn't say, oh, no, it's absolutely not an interstellar spaceship. But, you know, I'll just I'll just think about that in the middle of the night when I'm scared to death. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I mean, you could even say that uh, the thought of interstellar space travelers landing on Earth might make me pee my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads us into this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> that was an excellent transition. Uh, uh, yeah, you're welcome. Um, not that the title of this paper is going to lead you to understand that. Um, yeah, I'm going to let you read this one. Oh, dang it. Okay. <laughs> Validation of a functional paleocalcial renal model for the evaluation of renal calculi passage while riding a roller coaster by Mitchell and Wartinger. <laughs> right. And this was sent in as part of the list of this year's Ig Nobel's that uh, listener Daryl sent us. Oh, and this one's real good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a paper about can riding a roller coaster make you pass a kidney stone? <laughs> yes, yes is the answer. <laughs> yeah, with alarming repeatability. Uh, yeah, um, so once again, I just can't say enough how much I love how some medical journals do their abstracts because instead of this abstract abstract there's a box that says context objective methods results and conclusion I think I want to make my grad students write their abstracts like this and then just take out those boxes you know because it is just beautiful I I agree I will say this paper gets zero points for avoiding jargon oh boy I was two pages in before I even knew what we were talking about (laughs) yeah (laughs) like no kidding like even it's laid out wonderfully that abstract but still i didn't know (laughs) until i started reading and so that's exactly what it is like they built this awesome little model um basically because of this anecdotal evidence that all these patients had saying that they passed kidney stones after riding a roller coaster specifically the big thunder mountain railroad roller coaster at walt disney world (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that cracks me up <laughs> i mean it, this had to be again one of those conversations where after you know they get off shift at the er or whatever the doctors are sitting there and exactly. i had another one of those people that passed a kid they said they were at walt disney too exactly that's exactly what happened and look it turned into this uh, <laughs> it was really cool though because not only was this just reporting okay this could happen but they tried to put some empirical data to to this. And so it's kind of a two-part study. So verifying these anecdotal evidence, but also they use this silicone model of a functional pilocalcula renal area, right? And so they loaded this silicone model up with kidney stones and then put it on the roller coaster in different seats. Yeah, so they put different kidney stones, different sizes, in different places along the track from kidney out to the world mm-hmm. in this model and they put it in a backpack and the approximate place that this would be in your body when it was strapped into the roller coaster <laughs> and uh 
then <laughs> my favorite part was they had to stand in line, just like everybody else, get to the roller coaster, strap their little backpack in, let it go do its thing, and then uh, take measurements and get back in line. <laughs> so somebody stood in line at Disney for days, probably, to get exactly. these, I think it was 60 roller coaster rides in. Exactly, because, you know, well... I mean, I don't know if you know, I'm a big roller coaster fan. And so you either want to be in the very front row or the very last row. And so you know that that poor person had to ride so many times to get data for those rows that are like the highly sought after seats on a roller coaster. Right. They said that it's basically random seating uh, where they got, but then they had several of these models and each model went on the roller coaster 20 times and the progress of the kidney stones was measured each time. Uh, because somebody might go on the roller coaster multiple times. Somebody like you might go on it 20 times. Exactly. And if you are a roller coaster buff, you know that the roughest part of the ride is in the back, which is part of the fun. And that is backed up by the amount of kidney stones that are passed. <laughs> which I Yeah, <laughs> so if you're in the first seven rows, uh, the passage rate was about 16.67%. If you were in the last three rows, it was 63.89%. That's amazing. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> um, yeah, and they had, so you said here, they did these different sizes of kidney stones, too. And they put it in different parts of this functional renal model as well. So that was really interesting. So there's a lot of data that came out of this. Yeah, but if you've got, you know, I mean, a a large kidney stone in the upper location mm-hmm. was still a 28.6% yeah. passage rate. Right, exactly. Um, and if you were in the rear, it was a 100% passage rate. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and that's, you know, a 65 cubic millimeter kidney stone oh my gosh yeah i i tried not to read those numbers too closely because yowza um and and these kidney stones and this model they made were all from scans of a real person right and they say that they use the silicone model in um surgery training and stuff and i also (laughs) love that they said that obviously they had to use the silicone model because the the alternative, which is using pigs or something very like humans, was not appropriate for a family theme park. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, with my black sense of humor, had some <laughs> really funny images of some poor kid getting on this roller coaster next to this pig bladder. <laughs> Just being scarred for life. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure, I mean, they said they cleared it with the park first, obviously, because if you just walk up to a roller coaster and say, I want to strap this backpack on, yeah, yeah. they're going to go, whoa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, the poor dude having to stand in line with his <clears throat> silicone pee sack just cracks me up. <laughs> so here's the part that I really loved, though. So... um you didn't love all that we just talked about. <laughs> well, true, but they have uh, recommendations at the end. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, women with small renal calculi who are planning to become pregnant should consider riding moderate-intensity roller coasters before starting calcium and vitamin D supplements with prenatal vitamins to reduce the risk of complications. Uh, 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 that's great. 
Or if you've passed a stone, then you should regularly ride a roller coaster to eject any smaller stones that are forming before they become large and a problem. I love this. My doctor prescribed this for me. I'm sorry. I need to get to the front of the line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, will insurance cover the, your, your ticket? Insurance needs to. Disney World's real expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a good... Okay. I'm going to write that down for uh, when we visit. <laughs> <laughs> you can take this paper and the medical literature says. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is beautiful. Yeah. This was a great find. And while hilarious, is extremely useful. <laughs> yeah. So if you have your own roller coaster kidney stone passage data... <laughs> Don't send that to us. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> but if you've got any more fun papers, any questions, things that you would like us to discuss, uh, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, please email us those suggestions, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com, because we're going to have to start coming up with our own ad- ideas again soon. So let's hear them, people. Um, <laughs> also, you can uh, send us those on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. We're in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground channel, or on the Software Underground Don't Panic channel. And then, as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us produce this podcast. We appreciate your support. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.